Tonight's scripture passage that I'll be preaching from is found in Job chapter 19. Job 19, starting with verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will ye vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have ye reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. And be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. If indeed ye will magnify yourself against me and plead against my, me my reproach, know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. Behold, I cry out of wrong, but I am not heard. I cry aloud, and there is no judgment. He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my paths. He hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone. And mine hope with hath he removed like a tree. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. His troops come together and raise up their way against me, and encamp round about my tabernacle. He hath put my brethren far from me, and my acquaintance are verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I called my servant, and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for my children's sake of, of mine own body. Yea, young children despise me. I rose, and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do you persecute me as God and, not satis- and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. But ye should say, Why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? But ye be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we uh, thank you for this text, this uh, heart um, heartfelt plea of Job toward his friends, toward you, and uh, we pray that we would learn the lesson of Job and and, uh, be instructed by this text. Uh, We pray that you would teach us, that you would open our hearts to hear from your word, that you would encourage us with uh, this uh, incredible profession of faith, 
and that we would um, all glorify thee for your persevering work of your Holy Spirit to preserve not only Job's faith, but our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a boy, every year around this time of year, my parents would take me to see a presentation of Handel's Messiah, presented by Augustana College, a Lutheran school in the Quad Cities in eastern Iowa. My, my, um, my parents loved it so much, they even tried out for supporting singers and were accepted. Soon, I would see them singing with almost a 100 singers, and the full college orchestra led by guest opera singers singing their various parts. It was glorious. I grew to love Handel's masterpiece, and still do. I have it on my Spotify favorites. Um, over this year, I have grown to appreci- over the years, I have grown to appreciate all the biblical passages it draws from, draws upon. Part three of the Messiah begins with the very passage we will be considering tonight, sung by the soprano. I encourage you to enjoy it on the way home tonight if you have access to it. Um, you got to start, though, with um, the Hallelujah Chorus right before section three. It's really, it's really good. But then the soprano starts out with part three, and it sings this passage. Most of you, I am sure, are familiar with the story of Job and how Satan provoked God with the words, Doth Job fear God for naught? God then allows Satan to test Job with suffering. He did this for the following purposes. Number one, to demonstrate his own redemptive power. Number two, to show that the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit produces a true faith and love toward God in the soul. Such a love cannot be destroyed even in the face of suffering. Number three, this true faith and love in the believer, in contrast to Satan's charge of being self-serving, is self-sacrificing. These frowning providences upon Job, as in all acts of God, were ordained for the primary purpose of glorifying God. However, they also blessed Job by vindicating his spirit-wrought faith from the accusations of Satan. And on the judgment day, may we all, with Job, be shown to have endured this life of suffering with our faith and love of God fully intact and strengthened by the Holy Spirit to the praise of God forever. It is this God-given faith that I would like us to focus our attention on in this text. I think Job 19, above all chapters in the book of Job, does the best job of highlighting the nature of Job's faith. And that is why I wanted to preach from this text tonight. God forbid that I should exalt Job in any of this. He is as weak and frail as any of us, especially under suffering. However, what I see clearly exhibited in this passage before us is the preserving power of God in the believer in times of suffering. For in the end, when we stand in the face of suffering, we demonstrate God's power at work in us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 
Um, And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, um, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So as we study the amazing faith of Job in the face of horrible suffering, we are really studying the strength and power of God in believers. We delight to know and meditate on the fact that God receives all the glory in this. In chapter 19, Job begins his answer to Bildad, one of his long-life companions, by expressing his complaint uh, against the vexation of his companions. They, They begin well by remaining silent for seven days and seven nights. However, they could not resist the temptation to correct Job Um, and to correct his words. Let let that be a lesson to us all. It is never good to cast judgment upon a friend who is enduring a frowning providence. This is what uh, Job says in in, uh, verse 2. How long will ye vex my soul and break me in in pieces with words? These ten times have ye reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. And be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. You can see that his friend's words are hurting him. His argument in verse 4 is something like this. If I have erred, I am only hurting myself, not you. Why are you hurting me? I have not wronged you. What have I done to you to deserve this constant vexation? Not being in the know about Satan's accusation and eventual permission to test him, Job assumes that it is God who is set against him. Job continues in verse 5. <clears throat> if indeed you will magnify yourself against me and plead against my, me my reproach, know that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. Behold, cry, I cry out of wrong, I, but I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my paths. He hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone, and mine hope hath he removed from a tree He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. His troops come together and raise up their ways against me and encamp around my tabernacle. He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintances are verily estranged from me. Notice Job's accusatory words, he hath. When we understand that God ordains all things that come to pass, and when we encounter his frowning providences, it is easy for us to doubt Paul's words that God works all things together for the good of those who loved him. It is easy to forget that our suffering serves a purpose, which is to try us. Notice how Peter points this out in 1 Peter 4:12 through 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in, partake of Christ's sufferings, 
and that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Here we see that our suffering has three purposes. Number one, to try us. Number two, to help us to partake of Christ's sufferings, a theme um, so well th- uh, brought out of, uh, by Pastor Sharp's sermon uh, in Romans 8 and Philippians. Number three, to give us exceeding joy at the second coming of Christ when he comes in glory. This joy, of course, comes from the knowledge that our, per- that our persevering faith will gl- give glory to God. When we forget these things, we are w- left with the false conclusion that God must be against us, not for us. Notice how Job is kept in the dark during his testing. We must remember that God is not obliged to, as our sovereign Lord, to provide us with detailed explanation of his secret will. Was Joseph told about him, uh, was told how his being sold into slavery would serve God's purposes? Was Moses told how his being forced to run as a fugitive from Egypt would draw him to encounter God on the holy mountain? Was Paul told beforehand how each of his sufferings would glorify God and establish the truth of of the scriptures? No, only, quote, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake, Acts 9, 16. Was Peter told beforehand how his crucifixion would glorify God? No, only, quote, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Job wants to appear before God to plead his case. If we look ahead to chapter 23, he says this, Oh, in in verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Does Job want unmediated access to the judgment seat of God? How did God respond uh, when he eventually appears to Job? Chapters 38 through 40 is where God responds to Job. And in those chapters... There are, I counted, 65 question marks in my English translation. He never tells Job what he is up to. He seems to be asking the same question over and over again, 65 times, to Job. The question is, are you God? He seems, or he is correcting Job, Job's desire to know the secret will of God. In, in times of suffering. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Brothers and sisters, I know it is tempting in times of suffering to wonder what is God up to, to question God's wisdom. All we know is our pain and, our tor- and the torment of watching a loved one uh, experience great pain. It is in these times of great weakness that Satan comes to us with his insidious lies. Lies like this. God doesn't love you. Or 
God isn't in control. Or you could have ordained things better, a world with no suffering. See, God really isn't wise after all. Or how about this lie? It's most, uh, most seductive. We deserve better. God, God is evil. What is God's answer to all this? He says, trust me, let me be God. You shall find out in the end that I am working all things out for your good and my glory. God graciously corrects Job before removing his sufferings. What does this tell us about God? Could it be that God is more concerned with our spiritual well-being and our faith than he is about our temporal comfort? It can sometimes be helpful to understand this during times of God's frowning providences. God loves you, and it is because he loves us that he is more concerned about your sancti- our sanctification than our ease and comforts. God healed Job by healing his soul first and then healing his body. This illustrates God's priorities towards us. This can be very helpful to know when we experience suffering. We are to meekly bear our crosses, understanding this from 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Job continues to recount his sufferings from verses 14 to 21. Notice the extent of Job's miseries. He says, My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh. His body was so racked with pain that he hardly ate and was emaciated. His recounting of his sufferings reached a crescendo crescendo in the following plea toward his friends, twice repeated for emphasis. Have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Then Job says something unexpected. He, his theme changes. He is about to give us his statement of faith. It is so important that he wants it recorded forever. He says this, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Written? How? I pulled out an Old Testament survey book and was interested to learn a few things. Job was likely written during the time of the patriarchs. There are a few linguistic clues clues that suggest that some of the book of Job agrees with some very early Babylonian cuneiform writings. Cuneiform writing is a logographic, think uh, pictograph, uh, where pictures represent whole words, and uh, syllabary language, symbols representing syllables. Um, The land of Uz is located in Edom, 
just north of where Moses lived in exile, and it may have been a writing uh, been a writing that Moses himself translated into Hebrew from cuneiform. So there is writing back in the day of Job, but it's not the kind of writing we would think of, like Hebrew, um, uh, that we would think of um, writing with with uh, uh, with with a pen and ink. Um, according to Spurgeon, some have theorized that Job was wanting the following statement to be his epitaph, written on his tombstone, thus in the rock or a sepulcher. Job was saying, if there is a short statement that I want people to understand about me, it is this. And this is what he says about what what he wants on his tombstone or an epitaph. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins or my bowels be consumed within me. This is an amazing statement of faith. First, we shall examine the concept of Redeemer. Spurgeon says this in his sermon on the text called, I Know That My Redeemer Liveth, which I highly recommend that you go read. That's a very fantastic sermon um, on Job, the end of Job 19. Spurgeon says this, I know, said he, that my Redeemer liveth. The word Redeemer here used is the original Goel, that's Hebrew, Goel, kinsman. The duty of the kinsman, or Goel, was this. Suppose an Israelite had alienated his estate, as in the case of Naomi and Ruth. Suppose a, pa- a patrimony which had belonged to a family had passed away through poverty, it was the Goel's business, the Redeemer's business, to pay the price as the next of kin and to buy back the heritage. Boaz stood in that relation to Ruth. That ends the quote by Spurgeon. Notice the following uh, about this Goel or kinsman. The very word implies nearness in nature, a kinsman. Uh, This Goel is Job's redeemer. He calls him my redeemer. Therefore, Job had an assurance of salvation, not just a assurance of faith in his redeemer. Spurgeon does a fantastic job on this. If you get a chance to read that sermon, the whole concept of my redeemer, that God owns me and I have him. Uh, He has me and I have him. It's just a wonderful, wonderful part of that sermon. Um, next, though Job may be dead, his Goel liveth, and his Goel is eternal, since he not only liveth presently while Job was alive, but also would be living when he stands at the later day. This, etern- this Redeemer stands upon the earth. This is a reference to a future day where the Goel would redeem Job from judgment of death. Uh, which is the penalty of sin. So Job believed in an eternal redeemer that would come again in judgment upon this earth, but instead of a judgment of condemnation, this redeemer would buy back Job from death and raise him with a resurrected body. 
Job believed his sin incurred a debt of death, since redemption implies a buying back of his very soul. What would this his soul owe if not the penalty of sin? This is further implied by the sacrificial system that Job regularly offered to God and practiced for his sin. Now wait, you might be thinking, you can't say that. I, I don't see anything here about the resurrection. Oh yes, I did say resurrection, resurrected body. Because Job goes on to explain the resurrection very clearly. He makes the following points about this, his resurrection. It will take place after his skin has been eaten by worms. Why do worms eat flesh? Worms are God's cleaning crew. They return our flesh back to dirt from which we were formed. If you want a graphic description of the worm, read Spurgeon's sermon. I know <laughs> that my, my redeemer liveth. It, he goes into great detail about this point. Um, <clears throat> Uh, from Job's skin to the reins, the bowels, and everything. With the phrase, yet in my flesh, Job, Job declares his belief in a bodily resurrection. This is not a mere spiritual apprehension, but a bodily seeing with the eye. He even mentions that his resurrected body will have eyes, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him, or shall behold Putting this together, Job's body will be consumed by worms and decomposed in his grave, yes, including his eyes, but there will come a day when he will receive a body with flesh that will see God with his resurrected eyes. To summarize, Job, in the nearness of death, wanted his epithet to be something like this. I place my trust in an eternal redeemer of nearest of nearness in nature to me, but who, but one who lives now and will live at the coming judgment, this future world redeemer will redeem me from the eternal punishment of sin and bring about the resurrection of my flesh, whereby I shall see God with mine own eyes. Keep in mind, this was a profession of faith before the Bible was written. It's amazing, amazing faith. Um, Job ends chapter 9 with a note of warning to his friends. But ye should say, why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishment of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. The ESV does a better job of translating here, putting uh, verse 28 as follows. If you say, how will we pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him? Uh, that's how they, they put it, which I think is a better translation. So here the, the, it's, he's describing his friends going after him. Here Job reminds his friends that when we sit in judgment upon those who are suffering, we should beware lest we should fall under God's discipline. Then he says something astounding, that you may know that there is a judgment. The last judgment is or this last statement is completely contrary to the world's reasoning. Sinful man argues in this way when confronted with suffering. I am good and deserving of mercy and love, which is kind of an oxymoron, deserving of mercy. Um, 
I am suffering, therefore either God is not merciful and loving or God is not in control. That is the unbeliever's line of thinking when he counters suffering. Here is Job's reasoning. We are deserving of worse judgment. Suffering should remind us that there is a judgment in the future. See that difference there? In other words, instead of asking the question, why did something bad happen to me? We should be asking, why is God so merciful to me? Why has God delayed his judgment upon me? This is the reasoning of the faithful and meek. Jesus teaches the same in Luke chapter 13, where he says, of these 18, in Luke 13, verse 4, of these 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think that ye, they, think that they were sinners above all men and dwelt in Jerusalem. I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Disasters and human suffering should cause all, should cause us all to consider the judgment day and our own sin. In meekness, we should look towards, uh, inwards, towards repentance. But instead, the world sees suffering as an opportunity to cast doubt on the existence of God. How wicked. The believer's sufferings, though they rage large upon us, when we experience them, we are, quote, light, they are, uh, quote, light affliction, which is but for a moment when compared to eternity. It would have been better for Job's friends to have heeded Job's warnings instead of heaping judgment upon the soul of a saint suffering to God's glory. In conclusion, when we look back at this amazing profession of faith, let us give glory to God for his persevering power in uh, in spirit-wrought faith. We cannot take credit for this in any way. It is God's redemptive work from first to last. The golden chain of salvation is crafted and completed link by link. Whom he has, he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them also he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Uh, As Spurgeon would close his sermon, I say likewise, may the Lord add his blessing on the feeble words of this morning, or in our case, evening, and to him be glory forever. Amen. Now let us uh, pick up our closing hymn of response. Hymn number 218, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name.